0: CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. 2017's Last Patch Tuesday has come and gone. Android gamers beware of malware-serving classic games... Cryptocurrency speculative fever is still rising. Not even DDoS or overtaxed exchanges put a damper on it. More unwelcomed miners are using the unwary and unwitting to pull Monero out of streaming video services. Ransomware extortionists are finding Bitcoin prices sometimes rise too fast for comfort. False hitman spam. A Russian hacking defendant in Russia says Putin made him do it. And there's some guilty pleas in the Mirai case. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Summary for Wednesday, December 13th, 2017. Yesterday was Patch Tuesday, the last one of 2017. Flash issued its traditional monthly fix for Flash Player. Microsoft pushed out a number of fixes. 20 critical, 12 important, which observers are calling a relatively light update. As always, patching is vital to digital hygiene, so take a look and listen to your sysadmins. Those of you who play classic games on your Android device, Tank and Bomber, Battle City Super Tank, Retro Brick Game, Classic Bomber, and so on, beware. App Authority has found an infestation of malicious code appearing as a payload inbound from the Gold Duck server. The cryptocurrency inflationary bubble continues apace. DDoS attacks against Bitfinex have been impeding Bitcoin trading this week, and rival currencies Litecoin and Ether are absorbing some of the speculative pressure that's seeking an outlet. The Ethereum trading exchange Coinbase may also be under denial-of-service attack, or it may just be clogged by traders. It's difficult to tell. Coinbase's CEO Brian Armstrong warned speculators not to expect to be able to trade on Coinbase during busy periods, and indeed it appears that heavy usage is what's bogging down the site. It's a popular service. The Coinbase app has recently been among the top free downloads available online. Bitcoin has been extraordinarily popular among individual speculators in Asia, millions of whom have taken a flyer on the cryptocurrency. South Korea has displaced Japan and China as what the Wall Street Journal calls the latest hotspot. Some deny that this is a classic bubble, but it certainly looks like one. Most observers think a correction is inevitable. It would seem to be on the grounds of the high electrical power consumption being drawn by Bitcoin miners and other panners for crypto gold, and not a few of them think that correction is likelier to be a hard than a soft landing. When ordinary people without the resources to follow or perhaps even understand a market jump into speculation, and when they're wagering their savings on the promise of big, big returns, well, as Ars Technica writer Timothy B. Lee notes, the current wave of speculators is less sophisticated than those that drove earlier Bitcoin booms in 2011 and 2013. As Lee puts it, quote, The market is starting to feel like the final month of the dot-com boom, where people started getting tech stock tips from their taxi drivers. Quote. With all that money in play, criminal interest in cryptocurrency remains high. Security researchers at AdGuard have noticed that popular video streaming sites have been using visitors' devices surreptitiously to mine Monero. That this mining is done without the user's permission or even knowledge is obvious. The affected sites are OpenLoad, Streamango, Rapid Video, and Online Video Converter. Almost a billion users are thought to be affected each month. But a spare thought for the poor crooks who are pricing the ransomware extortion in Bitcoin. One way an institutional victim, like, say, Mecklenburg County, North Carolina, is going to look at a ransomware attack is as a cost-benefit proposition. They might, might consider paying if the cost isn't too high. Mecklenburg County told its extortionists forget about it and has simply bitten the bullet and gone about restoring its systems without paying. But if the ransom isn't too high, some might well pay. That's become harder. If you ask for some number X of Bitcoin, and by the time the deadline you give the victim expires, three or four days are common enough deadlines, they'll find that Bitcoin has risen by 25% or 50% or 100% or, well, forget about it. Sometimes it's not easy being a criminal. Some poor crooks, of course, don't even deserve a thought. We're thinking of the outrageous creeps who've begun emailing people saying, essentially, I'm a hitman and your life is in danger. Because, quote, your activity causes trouble to a particular person, end quote, and said person has hired me to kill you. But because of the sender's sincere concern for the recipient's life, he'll cancel the contract and tell who ordered you whacked if you pay him 0.5 Bitcoin. So, if you get such an email, don't worry, don't pay, market as junk, and move on. Finding qualified candidates to fill available positions remains a challenge in our industry, and some companies are taking a different approach to getting talent up to speed, steering away from traditional certifications and degree programs. Point3 Security is one of those companies, and they think they've found a better way to prepare the next generation of cybersecurity professionals.
1: Evan Dornbush is founder of Point3. Well, I think when we train for cybersecurity positions or, or we teach cybersecurity, we're emphasizing the wrong thing. In America, you have this Victorian era style teaching model, rows and rows of students, Uh, memorizing things from, you know, canned PowerPoints, canned lectures, multiple choice tests. Uh, You know, at the end of the day, that that doesn't really benefit anyone. And so the way we've approached cybersecurity is more of a returning to, almost like medieval ages, a craft. Uh, You know, uh, we do uh, journeyman, master, apprenticeship models, um, teaching the craft, all hands-on puzzles, no lectures, uh, no multiple choice tests, um, you know, no PowerPoints, full immersion into the culture. And I think... I think that's important. I think that matters. And I think the results speak for themselves. I, I think there's a certain amount, particularly from the
0: hiring side of things, there's a certain amount of uh, sort of gatekeeping that goes on with certifications and college degrees and so forth for people to even get by uh, you know, a certain level of being considered for jobs. You have to have things that can be checked off on checkboxes.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I, I think, again, that's part of the problem. And that's part of what we're trying to um, to change. I think I agree with you, Dave, that there's a huge, again, a huge disconnect between how human resources really solicits for talent. You know, what we have done in our training program is uh, demonstrate that hands-on skills are more relevant and uh, more meaningful, more impactful to the end employer than, like you said, a a particular certification that's based on knowledge, you know, memorizing a couple definitions here and there for a test, or um, in in many cases, a degree. So describe to me, what is the approach that, uh, that you all use? Yeah, so again, so what we do is we fully immerse our students into cybersecurity culture, so all hands on puzzles. Um, We run students through things like buffer overflows using uh, ALSR defeats and depth defeats, um, vulnerability research, uh, exploit development, reverse engineering, malware analysis. Again, these are the the niche skills that I think historically, going back to your gatekeeper comment, uh, Dave, you know, I think there's there's a conventional wisdom that you have to start, you know, answering the phone and customer support and then proceed to help desk and then proceed to sysadmin and then become a programmer and then become a cybersecurity person. I, I think that that doesn't make sense. I don't think that's realistic and I don't think that's that's where the talent actually lies.
0: So how does this compare to, uh, for example, uh, you know, traditional educational systems have things like capture the flag programs?
1: Yeah, so I love that. Uh, you know, our, our our course is very capture the flag driven. Almost everything is a flag to be grabbed. And we have a, a, an expression that we use that says, you know, cybersecurity is, is really no different from going to the gym, right? Very few people want to invest the time to lift the heavy thing up and down lots and lots of times, but everybody wants the muscles. Cybersecurity is no different. You You have to invest in yourself. You have to take time. You have to struggle. Um, that's part of the growth process. And I think the problem with traditional education is time constraints, right? Oh, you know, we didn't get the answer, you know, before launch, so I'm just going to tell you the answer was, you know, 18, and let's go to launch, and when we come back, we'll start a new subject. That that doesn't help. You, it might feel good that you might feel like, oh, yeah, I could have figured that out, but, but you didn't figure that out. Therefore, you're more likely to not retain that information, not be able to reach that solution.
0: That's Evan Dornbusch from Point3Security. Russia's been facing a wave of what the Moscow Times is calling telephone terrorism cyberattacks. They're essentially bomb threats. Russian authorities say they've caused 2 million people to be evacuated since September and that the threats originate in Syria. Facebook finds three more Russian-purchased ads related to information operations surrounding the Brexit vote. That's not too many, and Facebook has looked only for ads paid for by the Internet Research Agency – the now-famous St. Petersburg troll farm. Google has also looked and says it's found nothing. Investigation proceeds. A Russian defendant in a Russian court, one of the members of the Lurk hacking crew, is said to have claimed President Putin ordered him to hack the U.S. Democratic National Committee. But both the court and the news source are Russian, and this particular informational matryoshka should be reviewed with appropriate skepticism until more is known. The Times of London reports that the accused hacker, Konstantin Kozlovsky, may well have other axes to grind. Their expert on Russian intelligence services, Andrei Soldatov, thinks that if Kozlovsky were legitimately illegitimate, if he really were under Mr. Putin's orders, he'd have been able to provide more technical details that he has. As it is, it's a bald assertion. Soldatov thinks it likelier that Kozlovsky is just honked off about being prosecuted for lurk and is maybe looking for some kind of deal. This, of course, doesn't mean that Mr. Putin isn't involved, just that we haven't seen the other dolls inside the Matryoshka. An interesting development in the Mirai case. As has long been believed, it was the work of a couple of guys in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Both entered a guilty plea to federal charges involving writing and using the DDoS code this week. The knuckleheads in question, Mr. Paras Jha, 21, of Fanwood, New Jersey, and Mr. Josiah White, 20, of Washington, Pennsylvania, are co-founders of Protraf Solutions, LLC, specializing in DDoS mitigation. Krebs says that's like a firefighter committing arson so he can get paid to put out the fire. That's not a bad analogy. Mr. Jha, at least, has also copped a guilty plea to New Jersey state charges. What are they teaching these kids at Rutgers these days? Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Robert M. Lee. He's the CEO at Dragos. Robert, welcome back. Um, you know, We've been going through some of the, uh, the risk factors when it comes to different ICS uh, categories. And today I wanted to touch on water, an important one. Absolutely. So water, of course, when we talk about any industry,
2: it's always good to note that there are some very, very small players, and there's also some very considerable um, size players in that community as well. So I'll I'll try not to treat it as if it's just one homogeneous industry to start off with. But when most people think of water resources, they're thinking of water distribution and wastewater treatment. Um, Basically, how do I get water and how do I keep it clean? There's a lot more to it than that, but that usually comes to the forefront of folks' minds. And... In those environments, there's historically been a very good safety culture, especially when you start dealing with things like chlorine and uh, other chemicals to make sure that they test even outside of any sort of cyber mechanisms. There's, you know, there's uh, one wastewater treatment facility I was in recently, they a routine schedule 24 seven where multiple people are actually testing samples of the water and making sure that there's not uh, an overloading of chemicals or anything like that. So even if a hacker got on and dumped chlorine into the tanks, they would notice. Mm-hmm. Um, So that's that's the good side. The bad side is uh, water industry by far is one of the least invested into industries. And there's a lot of reasons for this. I don't mean by their own community. Again, I I don't want to downplay the work that's been done there. But when you think of the infrastructures that get national attention and grant money and the security industry going after their budgets and uh, all, all of the research. You're usually thinking about electric systems, maybe manufacturing, but water isn't one of those ones that generally comes to the forefront. Hmm. at least not for a lot of those players. And um, they may talk about it, but they don't have the the staff. I mean, in many water facilities, there might be an IT guy who is supposed to do IT as well as security, and he mows the lawn on Fridays, right? It's like very, very resource um, sort of tapped. Hmm. Um, for that reason, and the lack of complexity in the water systems uh, compared to many other systems, there are some particularly damaging scenarios that you could think about. So as an example, when I try to balance the, the nuance and try to balance uh, sort of how attacks would occur, there's usually three variables that I, that I measure or think about. One is the complexity of the overall system. So where the electric power grid, you have redundant lines, you have redundant routes, you have substation in Baltimore is different than substation in D.C., let alone different parts of the country, right? There's interconnects. There's a lot of complexity in that system. And you can even measure sort of the security investment is, is adding to that complexity for the adversary. The second one is, like, what do you actually want to achieve? The impact. Is the impact you want to have a disruption for an hour? Is it only have... You know potentially physical destruction lead to disruption for a week um and then the the third one is is really that scale like am i talking about one site am i talking about um all across the united states so when we look at water um, it is It is an. it's still a complex system and the, the control system environments are still fantastic, but it's not as complex as an electric grid or one of the larger infrastructures. So the the ability for an attacker to go in and identify and learn an environment and do something malicious to it is not as significant a bar as we'd want. So we do have to add complexity to that challenge for them by investing in the right security to address the right threat landscape. That being said, there is also sort of the hilarious reality that. And There's a lot of tribal knowledge that occurs on how certain plants are run and operated. Hmm. And sometimes if you just follow the spec and you follow the engineering guide, you design an attack off that, it's actually not what's fully implemented. And that can lead to uh, unintended complexity for the adversary, um, which means they might do something expecting an outcome and not achieve that outcome at all. So in short, when I think of the industries that I wish was able to have more investment into it, water is uh, at the top of the list for me in terms of needing some attention, also understand what those unique water sort of targeting threats look like because we're not doing a lot of discovery there. But uh, as always, I, I try to balance it with the fact that, yes, we do have really good engineers and talent, but I, I would say we beca- are becoming more interconnected. We're becoming more homogeneous in nature and the natural complexity of the problem that benefits defenders is not so substantial in water to lean on. So we, we definitely gotta do more.
0: All right, Robert M. Lee, thanks for joining us.